Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. My guest today is Dr. Rebecca Goldstein. She is an American philosopher, a novelist and a public intellectual. She is also a MacArthur Fellow and has received the National Humanities Medal of the US, the National Jewish Book Award and numerous, others honors, numerous other honors. She is also the author of 10 books, both fiction and non-fiction, including The Mind-Body Problem, Betraying Spinoza and Plato at the Googleplex. Dr. Goldstein, thank you a lot for accepting the invitation. My pleasure. Okay, great. So uh, I usually don't uh, don't ask personal questions to my guests, but because it's you in this case, I would like to first ask you, because you grew up in a Jewish community, uh, what was the first thing you had contact with, either scientific or philosophic, that really made you question, start in question uh, the ideas you were born with? Or we, you grew up with? Yeah, yeah. So my family, um, yes, they were uh, religious uh, Jews. My father had come um, uh, from from Poland. I come from a very long line of rabbis. Um, my father, my grandfather, and as far as we can trace back, twelve generations. And my brother, my older brother, is a rabbi as well. And my nephews. I mean, <laughs> it's a very rabbinical family, and. Um, and yes, I, uh, I, I, first of all, I adored my, my family. I particularly adored my father. He was my hero. Um, a saintly, a, a truly saintly man. And, um, so yeah, I was, uh, I was a believer. Um, my family was poor. My father was a, you know, a refugee. And so we were very poor, um, intellectual. Um, and we didn't own any books because we couldn't afford books. And so before the Sabbath on Friday, you know, the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath begins uh, Friday at sundown um, and lasts until Saturday until three stars are out. So it's more than 24 hours. We were not allowed to do much of anything. We didn't ride. We didn't write. We didn't, um, uh, you know, come watch television, nothing, uh, no electricity. And uh, so we read, but we didn't own books. They were too expensive. So before um of sabbath every friday i was taken to the library uh, since i was uh five years old since i you know could read and um i was allowed to take out any book i wanted my parents felt that if it's in the library it's not a it's a good book it's, a, it's it won't have any dangerous ideas so i don't know exactly how old i was um I, I read through all the children's library very, you know, quickly, and, and then I was allowed to take out books from the grown-up library. I don't know how old I was. Um, but I took out a book by Birch and Russell called Why I Am Not a Christian. And it was, my family was fine with it. They didn't want me to be Christian. They were Jewish. <laughs> you know, I mean, my, you know, my mother would always look over a book, and she said it was fine. And... Um, in this book is a collection of essays by the great English uh, philosopher and logician Bertrand Russell. Um, there was the, the first essay was called Why I'm Not a Christian. It goes through the standard arguments for God's existence. Um, the anthropological argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. Um, and, uh, and it destroys that. It just goes through. And the one I was most interested in was the moral argument. Uh, because, you know, I, I had already been taking out a lot of books in science, 
Um, and I saw that there were fit, you know, that there were scientific explanations for everything, and that seemed, you know, just not for everything, but you know, it was an ongoing uh, process. But we had made so much progress, and but still, it seemed to me that we needed God to tell us right and wrong, the difference between right and wrong. Um, and so Bertrand Russell's analysis of the moral argument for God, um, which actually I, I don't think he um, acknowledges Plato here, but it really goes back to Plato and Plato's dialogue, the Euthyphro, um, that really uh, destroys the theological foundations uh, for morality. Um, it just blew me away. And I ought to say that I was already having tremendous difficulties with uh, believing that there was a good and powerful God because my family had suffered from the Holocaust, right? Uh, my father lost a tremendous amount of family. My mother's family came from Hungary, completely wiped out, completely wiped out. Um, and I knew this. I knew these stories. And I knew at a certain quite young age that all the kids in my generation were named after dead children. That we all were named after dead children who had been slaughtered, um, and it, you know, that it was a hard thing to understand how children could have suffered as they did if God, you know, was in charge and loved us as His chosen and blah blah, you know, all the things that I had been brought up. It was a hard thing to get your head around. And then when I read Bertrand Russell's elegant, sort of mathematically clean dissection of this argument, um, it was like, ah, yes, this is wonderful. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to try to reconcile the extreme horror, the moral horror of this world with my religious beliefs. You know, it all makes sense if there's no God, right? Or, you know, if, if we're, you know, morality has nothing to do with God, if morality is our business for us to think out. That, like, was, uh, I don't, it was joy, really. It was a tremendous joy. Um, it just all started to make sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would like to challenge you for a thing now. That is, uh, I personally also love philosophy, but my entire background is on science. And I'm a science aficionado, and I read all scientific book I can get my hands on. So... Uh, I would like you to try to convince me why am I not mad uh, uh, because I'm I keep reading philosophy. Why is it philosophy still relevant? And I and I mean I'm putting aside now people like Foucault, Derrida, Lacan because I don't read them anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I don't I I don't read them. Either. I'm interested in um, uh, a particular kind of philosophy. Whoops. Are we okay? Yes, okay. Yes. Uh, it's good. Um, for me, the use of philosophy is um, uh, trying to get the broadest picture possible. Um, and we get a lot of information from science. Um, and um, and, and that is, we all have to know this, because science is our best means of discovering what the world is really like, what really exists, um, and, and, and how it exists, right? And that science 
can tell us this? And that's one of the things that we're trying to discover in our big project, in our big human project of trying to get our bearings in the widest sense possible. I mean, we are the creatures who try to get our bearings. We're trying to figure out where we are, what's the universe like, what are we, how do we fit in with the universe, what's in store with us, what are we supposed to do with our lives? You know, these are, these are the kinds of questions that naturally occur to us to 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 us as evolved, the the evolved chimps that we that we are, uh, chimps don't try to do this, but we do. We try to get our bearings. Um, and so one of the most important questions we ask in trying to get our bearings is, yeah, what is the nature of this universe that we live in? Um, and I say science is our answer. But actually, in order for me to be able to make that claim that science is our our answer. Here is our best means of telling us what reality is like, because it is a way of getting reality to answer us back when we get it wrong. That's what the whole empirical methodology is about. Oh, you think that simultaneity is absolute, do you? Well, we'll just see about that, you know, and we test it. And we get reality to, to uh, you know, tell us, kind of shake us around and tell us when we're wrong. Um, but what I've just said, is philosophy of science. I, I can only um, justify what I've just said by first of, by, by first of all, I'd have to say that, that science really is about reality. Um, that is itself a substantive philosophical assertion. There, there are other views about what science is, instrumentalism, that it really doesn't ever get outside of our experience. It's a means of predicting further experiences. But, you know, when we talk about, you know, particles and fields and, 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 and spin up and spin down, this is all metaphor. We're not discovering the nature of reality. We never really go outside of our experience. That's a view that is very uh, popular among certain scientists, you know. So scientific realism itself can't, let me go back, the interpretation of what we're doing when we're doing science is not answered by science itself. Already, I have to step outside and engage in philosophy of science, try to give my arguments, you know, that make the most coherent sense out of what science is doing. And these are the kinds of things that we're doing in philosophy. We're taking science, um, and then we're taking other questions that we need to know in order to get our bearings. Including what is it that we're doing when we're when we're doing science? What is the whole enterprise about? Um, and we're trying to to make sense of that. That's what philosophy, I think, is. Um, you know, and I spoke particularly about philosophy of science, but there are other. You know, every field of human inquiry or human concern, there's a corresponding science of that field. So there's science of mathematics. I mean, philosophy of mathematics. I think, was I saying science of, I meant philosophy of, for every um, endeavor that we were engaged in, every um, cognitive or, 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 or behavioral uh, field that we're engaged in, um, there's a corresponding philosophy of that thing, philosophy of art, philosophy of religion, philosophy of history, philosophy of science, philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of language, you know, you, philosophy of education. And it always were asking these sort of meta questions about these fields, trying to make sense of them. Also trying to reconcile them with our um, with our other intuitions. I mean, we have we come in to this business of being human with a lot of intuitions, like for example about free will. You know that I'm well. 
science is giving us a lot of information, a lot of data um, from neuroscience now, from evolutionary psychology. And it's the job of, the, of a philosopher, I think, to take all of this uh, information from science and then trying to see which of our other intuitions we can reconcile with this, you know, what's coming out of the science and which can't. So it's, in general, just trying to get the hang of things in the broadest sense possible, always using the scientific data. Um, I have no respect, or, or no interest, I should say no respect, of, but I have no interest in philosophy that sort of floats free of science. Uh, but um, no, I think you know to be a good philosopher, you have to be totally immersed uh, in the science that re that's relevant to the questions that you're asking, um, and then to see well which of our intuitions we can hang on to, which are gone, which are um, actually uh, validated by the scientific data. But that's going outside of the science, um, and and it's something that philosophers are particularly trained to do. We're always looking for internal coherence. That's what we're sort of trained to do. It's different from a scientific training. I went through quite a bit of scientific training, quite a bit of um, math was my first love, and so that's that's where I you know spent most of my studies as a as a as a youngster. Uh, but um, it's a different kind of skill that's developed as a uh, as a philosopher, um, and I, I think that for me it's quite. Uh, it's absurd and also somewhat painful when I see scientists and philosophers fighting with each other. You know, this is the same project of trying to make sense, the broadest sense possible out of our world, but we're engaged in it's both scientists and philosophers, historians. I mean, there, were, there, there's, there should not be these turf wars, you know, no, this is, you know, and, or I'm more important. Uh, this is, this is, this is ego. This is silly. This is, uh, draining energy away. Um, or not, you know, there, I, I often find, you know, we all have our different talents. Um, and, you know, when you're dealing with people whose great sense of themselves and what makes them feel that they matter in the world and that they're important is their intelligence. It's very hard sometimes if you don't have a particular kind of intelligence, and there are many different kinds of intelligences, um, to recognize, oh, that might be important too, even though I'm lacking it. You know, that that's a, a this is what I, you know, this is where ego and these quite peripheral uh, issues come into intellectual debates, and they, they shouldn't be there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it seems pretty clear to me that you hate armchair philosophy, <laughs> at least with the science we have nowadays. So uh, on that basis, I would like to ask you, is there something that is an object of a typical object of study of uh, from philosophy? that because of the way uh, science is developed nowadays is completely outside of the grasp of science. So, for example, I don't know, one thing that people uh, usually put outside the grasp of science is the question of me meaning. Would you say that something like that is completely outside of the grasp of science, for example? No, no, not, not really. I think that... Um you know, the meaning of life, do you mean that, that sort of thing? Because meaning mm. yes. right. Um So, uh, you know, I think in fact, 
that um, evolutionary psychology has a lot to tell us about um, our uh, our great desire to make meaning out of our life. I mean, why is it that we uh, that we you know to um, you know that life can feel to say that life is meaningless can be a statement of the greatest despair um, and uh, you know really not wanting to go on, a sign of clinical depression, in fact. Uh, so, which shows something about the well-functioning uh, human psyche that we need a sense of meaning to our lives. And um, I, I like actually to use very much the word uh, because meaning to me. Uh, has a kind of elusive feel to it. I understand what meaning in language means. I don't understand what a meaning in life can mean. Um, and so, um, I, I'd like to use the word matter, mattering. That we 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 need to feel as if our lives matter. Um, and uh, I think clearly, I mean, to say, look, I don't matter. My life doesn't matter. This is a statement of deep despair. In fact, in the U.S., the, we, there's a website run by the National Prevention, the U.S. National Prevention for Suicide. And the name of this website is You Matter. You Matter. And I think this is very interesting because, of course, I like this word matter because also of its ambiguity. Um, it means the stuff of, you know, the stuff of which we are made. We are matter, right? Although many people want to deny that, but you know, we are matter. We are, uh, and uh, but then there's this word you know, to matter, to be, to be something, not to be insignificant. So I mean, I think that one of the things that really gets to the heart of what we are is that we are the creatures of matter who want to matter, right? And this is, and I think our longing to matter. Uh, there, there is scientific input from evolutionary explanation to, to, to explain that the fact that we are matter. Yes, this also, I think, follows from science. So I think, you know, for me, science, um, uh, it illuminates almost every question that I find a meaningful philosophical question. Uh, that is, you know, given the best scientific knowledge we have at this time, which is always, you know, open to falsifiability, part of what's so wonderful about science, but given what we have at the moment, um, you know, how, how do we reconcile these other things that we bring to the table, these emotional things that we bring to these table, these other intuitions that we bring to the table, uh, for example, that I matter, you know, which is part of a, a well-functioning psyche. Um, how do we reconcile these things? How do we make sense in the broadest way possible? To me, this is what philosophy is, is, it does. Um, and so, let me see, are there any questions that philosophers consider that, no, well, no, I think, I think all of these go beyond the range of science, that, you know, you're stepping outside, um, but, but what science is telling us is always relevant. Um, and to me, you know, like, for example, a paradigmatic, um, philosophical question is, you know, what is science doing? Science can't tell us. There's nothing, you know, that, that's falsifiable here. Uh, there's no claim that one makes in philosophy of science that's open to the corrections of reality. And that's the province of, of science that's going to 
tell us, uh, make us decide between scientific realism and scientific instrumentalism. So it's, you know, it's step, you have to look at what science is doing, um, but you have to step outside of it um, to ask these questions. And I don't know, it's, it's not to say that one is more important than the other, it's to say that we desperately need each other um, and each other's trained expertise. There have been great scientists who were great philosophers. Albert Einstein, a great philosopher, uh, who studied Spinoza very deeply. He was very influenced by, by Spinoza. But he he was a great philosopher because he studied philosophers. He trained his mind philosophically as well as scientifically. Um, so, you know, there are certainly these capacious minds who are wonderful at both. Um, but, um, but, you know, for lesser mortals, you, you concentrate on one or the other. I was so bad. So I started in physics. I was such a bad experimentalist. Everything went wrong in the lab. Everything. <laughs> I, once I set my hair on fire, I mean, I was just completely hopeless in the lab. And I thought, okay, mathematics, I don't have to go into the lab. <laughs> that was, um, and then I passed away eventually to philosophy, which is, you know, where I, I, I feel like I thrive. Uh, but we, you know, very few of us are, are good enough to do everything. Um, so, so division of labor, but working together, right? Working together, respecting each other, um, and working together. There are so many forces at work right now undermining reason. I mean, it's terrifying to be living right now in the United States of America. I mean, there are, you know, just really forces that don't, ex you know, that don't, that resent, that don't recognize expertise. Um, that, uh, that hate reason, right? There's just unleashed emotion and tribalism and, you know, just real. So it's, you know, when there are these, um, arguments against people, all of whom are committed to reason, um, it's just, it's unreasonable. Right? That's unreasonable. Let's, let's use our resources and work together. It just, it just seems to me never has it been more important. Um, to recognize the contributions that we all, with our different talents, are bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and I would also <laughs> like to ask you, because I mean, uh, ju just because of, it, of what you just said, uh, it came to my mind that uh, I personally have a background on science. And uh, again, I, I already said this, but uh, and and only then did I move into philosophy by myself. I only studied philosophy by myself, never academically. And so I guess that uh, one of the great tools I got from science, and and it was very important for me to get from science to philosophy, and not the the other way around, because science gave me a very important tool that is to understand that my intuitions are for the most part fallacious and so and so if you're trying to do armchair philosophy you're depending too much on your intuitions and then we you will get a lot of things wrong i don't know if you agree with this or not absolutely completely and the other thing i think that uh, you know and of course i made the same trek that you did and i was struggling with a scientific um grounding and, 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 then, and then going to philosophy. Um, I mean, I didn't even know, I mean, because I grew up in such a sheltered background, I was, I didn't even know that there were 
you know, like still philosophers around, you know, that this, um, I, I, another book I got out of the library was called The Story of Philosophy by uh, Will Durant, and it was meant for a popular audience once again. You know, these books are wonderful, I mean, for children, uh, you know, questioning children and, and questioning adults, but, um, but you know, I, it, it, I, it was, uh, um, you know, I just thought, you know, Plato, Spinoza, you know, the, the people he spoke about. I didn't think there was still philosophers walking around. Anyway, um, it was, um, but I think you're absolutely, you know, I think, you know, a grounding in both is terribly important. Um, and all the philosophers, you know, that I studied with, that I read now, that I respect, they all know science. They all, you know, are deeply immersed in science. Um, so uh, the other thing that's so important um, for me, um, and for the beginning, and as it was in the beginning of philosophy, going all the way back to Plato, is that I think it's very important to talk to other people, um, to air your points of view to those who are trained in critical reason, and that's of course what philosophy, as well as science, teaches you, right, to, to be trained in questioning and the right way of doing it, you know, rigorous vigorous questioning, um, intelligent questioning, uh, forcing you to bring your hidden premises to light. That is so much, um, from, from the time that Socrates was wandering around making a nuisance of himself in ancient Athens and the Agora, that is so much the methodology of philosophy, forcing people in dialogue. Dialogue is so important. Again, Plato. Um, to uh, to acknowledge, to dig up what is probably unconscious, the hidden premises they weren't even aware of because they are so intuitively obvious, it seems, that you don't even see it. You think of it as just part of thinking. And that's another thing I think it's so important in this rational dialoguing, which is science and, and, and philosophy, very much philosophy, to bring as many different kinds of people into the conversation as possible. When it was all, you know, property white men, for example, <laughs> um, certain intuitions were not obvious to them because they shared these presumptions, right? And as, you know, other people are brought into the dialogue, um, who have had very different life experiences, and so whose intuitions might be quite different, um, you know, suddenly they're saying, hey, you know, you're assuming this. Justify it to me. Justify it. Tell me your reason. And that's also how progress is made, you know, so that uh, by, by by talking to others you know, who may or may not share our intuitions and, and bringing as wide um, a, a, you know, a diversity of viewpoints into this rational enterprise in order to proceed with um, towards greater rationality, greater ability, greater accountability. Right? That's what you know. That's sort of that we are accountable to ourselves and to others for justifying our our beliefs. And uh, but often, you know, it's hard to do it for yourself. Because you're not aware of uh, this, uh, of the things that you're presuming, they just seem obvious. Hilary Putnam, a, a philosopher who had been at Harvard, he had been someone I 
I loved personally uh, as a man and, and as a philosopher, but he says someplace or, a, uh, or other, it ain't obvious what's obvious. And then, <laughs> yes, it ain't obvious what's obvious. Um, and we often need one another uh, to, to call us on this. Mm -hmm. Right. And you already touched a little bit on this, the question I will, I will make now, that is, you already talked a little bit about Socrates and the ancient philosophers and now uh, by way of challenging themselves and asking for justifications to their beliefs, uh, they led each other to better ways of thinking, let's say, but because, because it seems to me that their epistemology, the epistemology of the ancient people, let's say, the ancient philosophers, uh, and the epistemology we have now with the scientific method, they seem so far apart, worlds apart even. So, uh, in terms of the content of their ideas, what would you say is still relevant from the ancient philosophers nowadays? That's a big question. Yes, and, and let me just say, yeah, you are so right that we have made so much progress since then, and you read certain things of theirs, and oh my god, you know, oh boy, were you confused, right? <laughs> Not just about the nature of reality, but yeah, I mean, just confused about all sorts of things. I mean, for example, you know, uh, Plato, uh, you know, they don't think to question slavery, none of them. Not Plato, not Aristotle, the greatest moral thinkers of their day never thought. To question slavery and you know so when I say that you know first of all one of the things that I'd say this is evidence for how wonderful this methodology that they started is right if we if we had not if we were not able to look back at them and say oh man were you confused why didn't you question this why didn't you question that um, that would show the hollowness of this methodology. They, they provided us a methodology by which we could make progress and look back at them and say, we know more than you, right? We, 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 not just scientifically do we know more than you. Morally, we know more than you. We understand why slavery is wrong. We could give you, and you know, in my um, book, Slavery with the Googleplex, I you know, I do, you know, partly trying to explain um, why philosophy matters, even in this age of, of, of you know, of, of, of science uh, that answers so many of the questions that philosophers tried to answer, you know, and couldn't because they were, in principle, empirical questions. We needed to be able to develop the empirical means for reality to tell us you know, look, you're wrong in this intuition, right? Um, but, um, but the, yet that there is still, there are still questions that belong to to the philosophical domain, even given the, the great importance of science in our day, um, and um, to tell us the, the answers to to questions that that we want to know. Um, also, I wanted to to understand the, um, you know, why the Greeks invented philosophy, as well as science and mathematics, and you know, or, or, or uh, um, mathematics by proof. Um, the Egyptians had really, you know, uh, developed geometry, but this kind of abstract mathematics by proofs, uh, you know, was developed by, by the Greeks. And, you know, and what, you know, and I 
why did they also invent democracy and why did they invent great art that still stirs us today? You know, what was it with these ancient Greeks? Uh, but one of the things I do um, in order to try to show how much progress we've made, that this methodology works, is I, um, I alternate chapters bringing Plato back into our day. Um, and, uh, you know, interacting with us about all sorts of questions. And he's constantly being amazed by how much more we know, not just scientifically, but, you know, in the, in the, in the province that he most cared about and the Socrates most cared about, moral knowledge. And, um, you know, and then he's, you know, very plain sort of non-philosophical people are able to elucidate for him. I mean, not professional philosophers are able to elucidate for him, you know, things that we just take granted. For example, that slavery is wrong, right? Never thought to question this. Now, I've totally lost track of what the original question was. What was I talking about? What, what was your original question? Uh, my original question was generally... Uh if the, there was still something relevant about the content of the ideas of ancient philosophers for nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, if you're, you're interested, I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated by the ancient Greeks. I'm just fascinated by their culture, why they asked the kind of questions that they did, and why they, they turned to reason to answer them. I mean, they had a religion, too, and they're Culture was saturated with religiosity, with religious rituals for everything, right? Um, but yet, when they ask these questions of, you know, that I, that I think of as, uh, the, the scientific slash philosophical questions trying to get our bearings in this world, they didn't look to their Olympic gods. They turned to reason. And that's very interesting. That's why they, you know, you, you find the beginnings of the sciences and mathematics and and even history, you know, and philosophy, and there, you know, because they're they're turning to reason to answer these questions, and that's to me sort of a historical, fascinating question. And so I love to read these philosophers uh, to see how they went about it. But I would say, to be a good philosopher nowadays, no, you you know, we have made progress. You don't have to go back. Uh, to read, you know, Plato and, and Aristotle. They have some amazingly wonderful ideas. Um, so, for example, let me say, you know, Plato was always, and he had this great intuition that goodness is real. It's not just, it's not relativism. You know, it's not my, my view of good, your view of good, that there really is some objective content to this notion of uh, right and wrong and being good. Um, and he tried out many, many different, um, uh, uh, theories of this, you know, um, one of the wonderful things about Plato that shows what a, again, that gives light into what it is to be a real philosopher is that he was constantly questioning his own point of view. He went through many different points of view. Towards the end, um, in uh, the, um, the later dialogues, particularly the Timaeus and the Laws, uh, which he wrote as a very, very old man, his view of what it is to be good is to know the universe, um, is to, uh, to, to he, he gathered, you know, of course, he, he was founded the first uh, European university, the academy, and he gathered to this, uh, to the academy 
people who were doing what we would see in our days were was physics. You know, they were um, or they were studying optics and they were studying cos you know cosmology. Of course, they didn't have the empirical methodology that we have developed. But these were the kinds of things that they were trying to answer. And his his answer to this is, you know, the best way of being a good person is to be fascinated by the universe outside of yourself with its the beauty of natural laws. I mean, he goes into beautiful sort of almost poetry there about the beauty the beauty of natural laws. They got that that the physical reality is governed by a small number of laws, and that that's beautiful. You know, the elegance of it, um, and that if you you are if your awe is directed outside of your own small petty life to the grandeur of the cosmic universe, that will widen your perspective um, and make you a better person. Right? But that is so. That, that's actually his last of you know. And then he died. He died about eighty-one or eighty-two. He lived a nice long life. Went through many different viewpoints. But that's like his last uh, word to us on what it is to be. A good person again. It's very Spinozistic, right? You know, sort of turn the vectors of your attention outside uh, to what is, and that that will broaden your your inner being. You will you will you you will not care about the petty things uh, that one is given as a human being to care about it. So, you know, it's do I think that this is true? I you know I I don't think it's necessarily true. I mean, it's an empirical hypothesis. Well, one have to go into uh, uh, departments of cosmology and such and see if these are really people who are have a, a wonderful broad view and they are less egotistical than others. And you know, from the time that I spent among um, the scientists, some of whom are uh, very great thinkers of our day, I haven't noticed that they're necessarily non-egotistical. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> You know, once again, uh, Plato was being perhaps uh, too optimistic here. Um, but you know, it is it is it is a view. I mean, but it's interesting to 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 go and to read the Timaeus. To me, it's fascinating, and to see how he keeps trying to understand what it is that will cure us of our smallness, of our pettiness. And his last word to us is science. That's what's going to do it. Um, Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, but um, but anyway, it's just fascinating to me. Um, and um, so I'm personally fascinated by it. Does one need this in order to be a, a philosopher to do philosophy? Well, not really. So I think you sort of have to, um, uh, you know, have one's have the training that one gets uh, becoming a philosopher, or by reading philosophy and discussing it with others. I, I do think um, that part of uh, and a very important part is, is discussion. Um, I have been called so many times on intuitions that I have, um, and you know, asked to justify them, and uh, you know, and, and struggle and struggle, and go home and think. And sometimes I give up those intuitions, you know. And uh, I think that we all need that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that, that's very interesting. And uh, uh, I would like to tell you about a, con a concept that we have here in Portugal that I think you, you will like to know about. And then you can comment on it. That is, here in Portugal, we have people. And of course, that must, always, must also happen in America and other places. People who go to the media 
and they talk, they have opinions on everything, even uh, subjects that are outside of their field of specialization, and they make predictions all the time, and they they are 100% certain of what will happen, <laughs> and you, you know the people who I'm talking about, right? And here in Portugal, we have a word for them, we call them todólogos, and in English it would be something like uh, all logists or everything logists, like psychologists are specialized in psychology, anthropologists in anthropology, the all logists or the everything logists would be <laughs> specialized in everything. So there are these sorts of people and it's very interesting because even though people tend to listen to them at least a significant uh, percentage of people listen to what they have to, uh, to say about things, uh, they still make fun of them because in the end they know that they can know or they cannot be as certain of the things they talk about as as they seem to be when they are on television or something like that. So if, even in that sense, it seems that uh, even with this concept that exists in Portugal and probably you have another concept for that there, there in the US that uh, it is pretty clear that the mentality of people over time evolved because they uh, it's not as easy as before for, for people to trust the intuitions of people that present themselves as knowing a lot about everything like for example the sophists did in ancient Greece right yeah. Sophists in ancient Greece were, you know, the, our whole, you know, we use the word sophistry now and it's a pejorative, it's a very negative term. It was not in ancient Greece. That's because of, you know, Socrates and, and Plato, they had a very low opinion of them. And so the word has taken on this pejorative meaning. But uh, they were simply, they were, they were really bad in the sense that um, they would, they didn't, they would teach you to argue your viewpoint, whether you're right or wrong, that that, that was immaterial, it's not even relevant, you know, like lawyers, actually. I mean, we have lawyers who do that now, right? They will, you know, take on a client and they will defend them whether they're guilty or not. Well, the sophists were sort of like that, you know, but, and so their, their, um, their indifference, their high-handed indifference to truth uh, was what made Plato and Socrates despise them. And see, that's, so this is something that we should really value these ancient philosophers for, for that, that they thought the truth matters so much, right? Which is itself a philosophical viewpoint. Why should the truth matter, right? Why should, if, if all we're trying to do is, is survive and, uh, and flourish, then who cares about the truth? Uh, let's just try to get our way. Um, you know, no matter what. And, um, you know, and this, this is a substantive claim. No, you know, the truth really matters. And maybe in just trying to get your way, no matter what, you are violating a moral truth. Don't you want to know whether you are? Don't you want to devote yourself to trying to figure this out? You know, and that's, you know, that's, the great value um, to me of uh, of these of these ancient philosophers that they so valued the truth, were sure it was out there, knew that it mattered, 
um, and, uh, and try to develop a methodology to help us get to it. So that now we can look back at them and say, gee, we know so much more. Um, yes, we do. Because it was working. Yes, it was working. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I would like to ask you a very specific question that is, um, so nowadays we know, particularly from the knowledge we have from uh, evolutionary psychology, that our moral sentiments are evolved entities, let's say. So would you say that uh, the fact that we know that and uh, as soon as we get to know completely how they evolve and how they work in our minds, that that scientific knowledge by itself is enough for us to have a moral system? No, um, I think again, you know, that we've just, we've, um, we have, we can explain um, different moral sentiments that we have. And here in the U.S. there's this uh, a psychologist, um, Jonathan Haidt. Mm -hmm. um, yes. He has, uh, you know, isolated, and sometimes he says five, sometimes he says four, sometimes he says more, um, sources, psychological sources for our moral intuitions. Um, and there's, you know, purity, for example. Uh, we want to feel pure. And um, there is, um, what else is that? Care, arm, fairness, loyalty, and authority, right? Loyalty to the group and respect for authority. Yeah. Um, and so that there is, you know, different moral intuitions that people have, and we have different moral intuitions, um, that they, they, you know, there, there are these different psychological sources of them. So, for example, you know, um, in the group that I grew up in, loyalty to the group, oh my gosh, this was so very important, right? Religious, you know, to, for the group into which one was born, um, and authority, oh, very, very important. I come from a rabbinical family, the rabbis were great authorities, you completely kowtow to their opinions about everything. Purity, incredibly important. There are so many laws, religious laws, where I came from, but I think in all religions, controlling sexuality, for example, in the tradition that I came from, controlling what you ate, right? The whole notion of kosher, non-kosher, this kind of purity, you know, and trying to Straight, you know, that the notion of something's being impure and, and, and that one wants to, and that one sort of develops a, 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 a repugnant for, for things that are impure, which are often, um, developed into a repugnance for people that one thinks are impure. Um, and so, you know, so that, um, so this is all terribly interesting. And then there's fairness, uh, you know, sort of equality among us. Um, not harming others, all of this, and you know, you can tell. Um, but um, psychology can tell us all of these. What psych? What we need moral philosophy for? Moral psychology can tell us moral philosophy for is, and which one of these sources that are feeding into these various intuitions can be justified, and which can't? Right. So this, you know. Respect for authority, your loyalty to the group that you happen to have been born into, um, purity, right, uh, that gets extended in all sorts of ways, including xenophobia, you know, to, to back up one's, one's uh, hatred of strangers, they're impure. 
Um, and um, with, you know, some of these um, intuitions lead to consequences that are immoral and, and cannot themselves be justified, and some can. And for that, psychology, psychology can't do the work. That's, you can't get psychology to give those answers. That's where you take what the science is giving us, and then you you do other things, philosophical things. You reason about them. What can be justified and what can't? You know, harm to others? Yeah, I would think, you know, we can offer philosophical justifications of why harm to others uh, is, is a bad thing and why uh, fairness is a good thing. That takes a lot of work, a lot of philosophical work. Loyalty to the group, authority, finally, you know, giving some special... Uh, People, authority, um, purity, harder to come up with uh, philosophical justifications for this. I think one can. Um, so would, would, if you just stay in psychology, and I have to say that height does this, what you end up saying is, well, they're all good. They're all good. And in fact, you know, he goes so far as to say, look, conservatives, we found empirically, appeal to all five of these, whereas liberals tend to appeal to only two. So in, in fact, you know, if you just count up, conservatives are better. <laughs> They're appealing to more um, of these sources of intuitions. And uh, that doesn't follow. If you stay within psychology, you might end up saying that. That's why you need philosophy. Um, you know, I mean, always together. And I'm not saying that psychologists can't do philosophy. I'm married to a cognitive scientist who I happen to think just very good philosophical reasoning. I don't think that we would have quite the marriage that we do if that were not the case, right? Um, and, um, you know, so it's not, as, I'm not saying that it's, I'm just saying it's a different kind of reasoning. And um, being good in one that's necessarily, you know, and if, if you don't see that they're different uh, kinds of reasoning, if you think that only one can do, you only think that you know, that philosophy and the Hegelian spirit can tell you what is, and you don't have to pay any attention to, to science, um, you're going to do very bad philosophy, you know, I, I, I think. And also, if you just, if you're a scientist and you think that the scientific answers one's getting um, can answer all of these questions, uh, including the philosophical ones, again, you're not going to be a very good philosopher. You may be an excellent scientist, but you're not being, you're not doing well in philosophical reasoning. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So, Dr. Goldstein, perhaps just one last question. Uh, so, um, do you think that in a scientifically dominated world, in a world dominated by science, that human beings are more, uh, are more at risk of falling into nihilism? Nihilism, thinking that there just is, there are no moral values. We, well, I suppose you, I think, I guess, I, perhaps that's right. Um, I mean, it would be, again, I, I'm always, uh, I always want empirical data, you know. It would be interesting to, to do surveys, right, among the scientifically literate community. Is there, you know, more of a tendency to say that, you know, yeah, there's no objective right or wrong or any of that. I mean, I don't know. Um, you know, and I, and I do think that would be an 
interesting empirical question um, to 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 to, uh, to pursue. Um, but you could think a priori, you know, just without the empirical data, there might be that tendency because of this. Uh, you know, I think um, you know to think that all of the answers are coming from science, and science is not giving us these answers, therefore there are no answers to be found, um, there might be more, you know, one might expect more the higher levels of, of nihilism, but um, but I, that's a prediction one could make on the basis of this reasoning, and it would be, but I think, you know, it would, we should, we should follow it up with surveys of some sort, you know. Um, I know among mathematicians, um, I've always been very impressed uh, by mathematicians' great, um, sort of a heightened moral sensitivity. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I don't know why that is, uh, but I've, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of my life among my, and they're egotistical, of course, and they want, you know, the theorem or the lemma to come be their theorem or lemma, and they get very upset if somebody else beat them to it and all. But I've just always um, uh, felt, you know, just in my personal relations with them, that there was a sort of heightened moral sensitivity. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> I spoke about. Plato's, I hadn't thought about, you know, but Plato's sort of optimistic view toward the end of his life, that sort of objective truth will open up our smallness, you know, and, you know, crank us open, you know. And there's nothing, I would say, more objectively true than mathematics. It's the one place where we get real proof, right? We don't even have to, you know, ask reality to answer us back, you know. We don't, don't have to put it to empirical tests. And wouldn't it be interesting if Plato was kind of right that, you know, mathematicians maybe, you know, have, um, because of the the high standards of truth that they deal with, um, have even, you know, sort of a, a, an opening up, um, and, and an opening up that also allows them to, uh, to recognize sort of the moral reality of others. I don't know, you know, maybe this is terribly naive, and maybe any mathematicians who hear this are saying, oh my God, this woman has not met the mathematicians I know. They're, they're just as, just as small-minded as everybody else. But I, you know, I don't know. As I say, it's an, it's an empirical question. Um, uh, it would be interesting to somehow design a questionnaire that could get at real moral sensitivity and offer it to people, you know, the sciences, the different sciences, you know, offer it to economists, you know, uh, biologists, theoretical physicists, mathematicians, philosophers, um, social scientists, and regular people, right, and non-academics, right, um, and see, uh, you know, are, are there differences here uh, with Plato right um, in any way? Um, or are, are, is there this a priori armchair Argument that we've come up with, you know, that in an age of science, yeah, uh, people will be very, very cynical and dismissive of, of moral questions. It's just all a matter of opinion, and uh, we can explain how these 
opinions evolve, but that's the end of the story. We can't say that you're right. Uh, okay, ju just to finish this up, let's hope that someone in my audience picks up on those ideas and performs those kinds of experiments and surveys right for us <laughs> to get to know more about this. Uh, but just before we finish this, Dr. Goldstein, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can follow, where they can find and follow your work on the internet? Well, I have a website, um, which I never keep up. I never, you just reflected me. It's completely outdated. Um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes um, talks I've given are on YouTube. Um, and what else? I tweet. I do tweet. Oh, so I was, I, I'm not on Facebook, but I do tweet because my publisher had said, oh, you have no social, you know, media, you know, when the last book was published. And so I thought, okay, but I didn't want it, um, I didn't want it to be sort of a self-promotional thing, you know, like, oh, here's where I'm talking. So it's just, I don't know, these, and again, it's, I think this is an influence of my religious background, you know, in which there was a virtue of sort of modesty you're not supposed to constantly be promoting yourself and this sort of thing and maybe especially brought up as a religious woman this was a very important virtue that was drummed into us modesty and so um so i'm still very uncomfortable with that sort of thing so i decided to tweet as plato um and so it's the handle is plato on book tour and you know the whole so it's the whole thing again of um you know, yeah, Plato back in our time and uh, and commenting on various things. But, you know, as things have heated up so much in world politics, U.S. politics, but world politics as well, um, I, I guess I, I've dropped more and more uh, this, <laughs> this guise of Plato, although, although, you know, he's relevant, actually. Um, I find, you know, many times I, I do quote him. I mean, he had a real fear of tyranny and real insight into the tyrannical personality, the kind of person, the authoritarian personality, who clearly is a type. And he was there in ancient Athens, and he was very much studied and observed and analyzed and, you know, and seen as a great danger to democracy, Athenian uh, democracy by Plato. And so, so many of the things he has to say are actually, you know, relevant because, you know, today, again, we're seeing the great rise of authoritarianism and uh, would-be dictators and, um, and uh, tyrants uh, growing up in the bosom of, of uh, liberal republics, right, uh, like the U.S. So that's, you know, interesting. Um, so he's, you know, sometimes relevant. Okay, so Dr. Goldstein, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. I really love your work, so thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I uh, it's really really fun for me to engage with you. <laughs> okay, thank you a lot. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel last February and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. 
otherwise and if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button i would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons karen litzke and blanchett peralga larsen and Logorero. thank you very much for all